constantly move forward. There's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. And a big shout out to Emma Schoenfellner, who's uh, tweeting there live for us. This first segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today we're joined by a a faculty member just finishing her first year at Olin College, Allison Wood. Welcome to the show, Allison. Thanks for having me, Dave. Well, um, Allison, we want to talk about uh, a number of things. We want to talk about... um, what it's like to be an environmental ed- engineer at a school that doesn't have civil engineering or environmental engineering. You want to talk about uh, some of your experiences uh, uh, in coming to Olin and and uh, some of your work in sustainability. But we like to get to know our guests a little bit before we jump into all of that. And so uh, you're, you are an assistant prof of environmental engineering at Olin. You're a playwright. You're a theater professional and uh, a musician. But let's go back in the time machine what were some of the early influences that put you on your current path? I have been incredibly lucky in my life to have a lot of really strong, positive influences um, in a lot of directions, beginning with my family. Um, my mother is a teacher, and my father, by his career, was in electrical engineering, and then after retiring, actually has become a private tutor. Um, so I really come from a family of, of people who are oriented towards education, even if they're not professional educators. A Mm -hmm. family full of people I would classify as scientist artists. Um, A lot of people who do pursue both, perhaps one professionally and one um, as a hobby. Um, And so I grew up with a sense of curiosity about the world, with a sense of um, the joy of learning and discovering things, um, including things in the technical realm as well as things in a more... Uh, humanistic and arts realm. So uh, I really, a lot of who I am today came from those really early influences of my family, but then they were reinforced um, through early educational experiences that I had. Uh, People think I'm a little crazy when I start talking about my elementary school, but I... Um, my elementary school was a huge influence. Um, they, it was a small school, small private school in New Jersey that I was lucky enough to go to because my mother taught there. Mm-hmm. And their education is based on a deep merging of disciplines, including a heavy emphasis on the arts. So everyone sings in the choir. Everyone takes woodshop classes. Everyone takes science classes. Um, everyone has to do the whole range of everything. And it really instilled in me a deep love of learning at a young age. Um, 
And then that was carried on in the high school that I went to where um, the teachers really appreciated how much I loved to learn and then provided a lot of really amazing opportunities for me while I was there. Um, So I have a lot to owe uh, a large number of teachers that I worked with as a young person uh, in particular because I did not really experience misogyny as a woman in a STEM field um, basically until after I left high school. I, I can recall like basically one incident when I was a child, one incident. And other than that, I I didn't really know what people were talking about when they talked about discrimination against women in technical fields because I was I had faculty um, and family who were so supportive in my pursuit of science and math as well as in my pursuit of arts and humanities. Um, so I really grew up believing that I could do anything that I wanted to do, that I could choose any pursuits and any professions yep. uh, based on those experiences that I had. Yeah, nice. And and thanks for sharing that. And and uh, follow up on it on, on this show in particular. Mark and I, Mark Somerville at Olin and I wrote the book A Whole New Engineer, and there we talk about unleashing experiences, um, where. Um, Along, you know, anyways, uh, along the lines of those discussed in the book, but to what extent, um, and maybe we've heard some of that already uh, in your stories about elementary and high school, but to what extent have you had experiences or individuals in your life who have helped give you the courage um, to go your own way? Um, yes, many of them were in those early experiences um, through family and elementary and high school, yep. but a few that stand out um, later in life include uh, a professor that I worked with when I was doing my engineering undergraduate degree at Rutgers, um, David Hill, who actually is now at Thompson Rivers University in British Columbia. I took his water class because it was required. At the time, I thought I wanted to study structural engineering um, and happened to take this water class and discovered that actually this other discipline really addressed all the things that I was looking for from engineering of not only the interesting technical pieces, but the ability to serve humanity. Um, And he really emphasized social and um, political issues in his class alongside the technical. Why is it that these things matter? And he gave me an opportunity to do some research for him during that last year and he was the one who set me on the road to graduate school. If it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have gone to graduate school and ended up where I am now. Um, and then in graduate school, my PhD advisors, um, first Michael Blackhurst, who ended up um, leaving UT after the first year of my PhD, and then Desmond Lawler, who adopted me when I was advisorless and saw me through the two remaining years of my PhD, um, both of them were so invested in my work and treated me as a peer, um, mm-hmm. granted a peer who didn't know much yet, but as a peer and not as a child. Um, it was very different from many of the models I had seen previously where the professor is the one who knows and the student is the one who doesn't. Yeah. Um, and so their um, encouragement and their trust in my ability to do my work as well as their support of my work that was a bit non-traditional, a little unconventional in our department, um, really gave me courage to continue working through that, and they supported me through that whole process. And then actually coming to Olin has been, um, I would say, an unleashing experience of its own, 
Um, mm. And we'll talk more about my experience here. Yeah. It, it really has been a huge turning point for me this year. So, but what I'm hearing is that the, so the, you know, so courage is connected with fear, something that you might not otherwise have done. And then you kind of, you buck up and, and, uh, and you do it somehow. And, and we actually, one of the things I've, I've been sitting in, um, um, a book on unleashing and 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 kind of cataloging different people's unleashing experiences but the, so the the courage came in the uh, in your phd and the the unconventionality of of what you were doing there was there was some resistance people said well is ask questions is this a proper thing to do for a phd and that was the that was the obstacle that needed to be overcome and it was the trust and the um being treated as a peer that gave you the courage to go through. Is that, did I hear that? That's what I was yes. hearing. Yeah. Yes, and I think the, the validation that the work that I find valuable is work that other people also find valuable. Yeah, yeah, nice. And then thanks for sharing that. And sometimes, sometimes this, you know, these, uh, this early segment gets uh, a bit personal. I appreciate your willingness to go there with us. And, and actually, we, and, and you alluded to Olin as being unleashing. And, and um, you joined Olin um, um, last summer and uh, mm-hmm. started teaching in the fall. And uh, so how did, how did you come to join Olin? What's your Olin um, joining story? Some of those are interesting. I actually didn't know anything about Olin until um, the fall when I applied. I knew okay. that I wanted to teach, and I did. I wanted to be in the Northeast uh, of the U.S., ideally, so I did a search of all ASAT-accredited engineering schools in the Northeast and just stumbled across Olin and very quickly fell in love with what I was learning about it. Um, so I applied and then promptly started trying to convince myself that I didn't really want the job so that if I didn't get it, I wouldn't be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I, I applied and I interviewed at really a broad range of schools, um, sure. from a teaching college all the way up to R1, uh, yeah. and found that when I was lucky enough to get an interview at Olin, the interview experience itself was different than any of the others I had. Um, I was too busy engaging pe- with people to take notes on any of the conversations that I was having. Um, mm. It was by far the most authentic and the most exciting interview process that I went through um, through all of those interviews. And I really, I came back from the interview feeling like I had found my people, um, which was pretty incredible after a career that's been, we've used the word unconventional already, and, and I think that's a, a good word for what my path has been up until this point. Um, so I... I was just holding my breath, hoping for an offer from Olin. And when it came, I knew that I wanted to be here. Um, and I have not regretted that decision for one moment since then. Yeah. And so when you, and you mentioned before, so when you first, you didn't know anything about it. When you first read about it, you, you said, wow, this is great. What, what was it? And you've, you know, now you have the, the one year version of, of what that's been about, but what was it at the time that kind of got, got you excited about it? Um, it actually reminded me a lot of my elementary school and of hmm. the beliefs I've held on what education should be and could be ever yeah. since that experience. Um, yeah. And so, again, I, people think it's a little weird when I bring up grade school, but it, ever since discovering Olin, I've been finding myself talking about it a lot. And, and being allowed to without getting strange looks, I'm guessing, too. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so, okay, and so uh, that's all. Oh, that's so cool. And, and again, thanks for sharing that. But so, okay, you've just finished your first year. It's the summer after your first year. You've had a little time to 
um, the the fire hoses have turned off, and and now uh, you can reflect on 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 what it's been like. What were maybe some of the most interesting or surprising things that you learned uh, uh, about the school uh, after joining it? Um, uh, this first year has really been a continual rediscovery of how truly deeply committed we are to our principles. I would say that when I first started learning about Olin, I kept going, but, but is this for real? It sounds great. You know, you read the website and it sounds like these amazing things are happening here, but is it just good marketing? Um, and I started to discover this when I interviewed and have continued to discover this over and over and over again, that we put our money where our mouth is um, when it comes to teaching as coaching and not professors as the be-all and end-all of knowledge. Um, when it comes to autonomy for students and for faculty, even for brand-new faculty, um, yeah. and when it comes to trying new things, we have so much freedom here to experiment and find what's going to work best for us as faculty and for our students and for us as an institution. Um, then I would say, not surprising exactly, but one of the most amazing things this first year has been seeing just how incredible the people are, um, how encouraging and supportive and engaged and excited um, everyone in the community really is, students and faculty alike. Um, and then my favorite surprise has actually been, um, I've spoken at several conferences this summer on behalf of Olin, or as an Olin faculty, Sure. And people are so excited to hear what I have to say because I'm associated with Olin. And yeah. I did not anticipate that. And it's been so much fun getting to go out into the world and talk about what it is that we do here. Yeah, that's great. And and um, so, um, you know, it, and I'm trying, it's been forever and ago what I, my, um, I, I shouldn't even say, but I, my, I was a faculty member in the fall of 1984. Okay. <laughs> so it's been okay. so long ago, it's hard to remember. But I'm thinking back, and I'm remembering, um, and this was, at a, this was at an R1. This was at the University of Alabama. And I'm thinking back to all the stuff you just had to, I mean, it was, uh, you, had, you had to get a research program going. You had to get your teaching going. You had to, you got thrown on committees. You had to do your service work. And, um and oh, by the way, you had to, you know, move your family um, to this new place. So um, what's uh, and so it's like drinking from three fire hoses. Um, what's the what's your first for? And I heard the excitement of it. What's the the kind of the work side of it been like? How, how's that transition? Or it's not actually a transition as much as a change. You went from kind of being a, a, a graduate student, not a faculty member. What? What's that been like at, at Olin for you? Well, it, ha- it has been a big adjustment, and yes, it is a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. Um, but uh, what I've said to people throughout the year is this job kicks my butt every day, and it's the perfect job for me. Um, so it, it has been exhausting, um, but also exhilarating. It's been an enormous amount of work trying to figure out how to um, change paradigms entirely from the upper, the higher education paradigm I was in for so many years to yep. the own paradigm of autonomy. Um, and even, so even though I embrace that fully, it's still this, this big shift to make mentally on a daily basis. Um, but there are so many things that have helped with that, like co-teaching uh, classes yep. fall. So not, I was trying to figure out how to be a faculty member and how to teach 
and how to be comfortable admitting that I don't know things in front of my new students when I'm just out of graduate school and things like this. But yep. having this team around me to uh, mentor me and give me examples um, and and help me through the tough spots made a really big difference. Uh, now, what class so, What class was that you were team teaching? Uh, we call it MobSim. It's a class on modeling yep. and simulation of the physical world. So it's modeling itself is what most of my uh, graduate work was based on. However, yep. this modeling was in domains that I was not as familiar with. Some things like mechanics, which I, you know, have obviously studied, but is not my forte, it's not my, my primary focus. And then things like pharmacodynamics or pharmacokinetics, which I knew nothing about until I started teaching this class. Um, and so trying to figure out how to take the pieces that I did know and find the elements that I had to offer our students and then feel comfortable sometimes stepping back and saying, you know what? I don't know the answer to that programming question. Let's go talk with this other faculty member who will know the answer to it, um, which is very much part of the Olin faculty model and is just a little bit scary when you're brand new to being faculty. Um, well, so yeah, having- the whole, <laughs> yeah, the whole thing of being a faculty member, at least the way you know you, th- you think of it as knowing, and, and uh, it's real easy you know, one of the things that Mark and I do when we run our faculty development seminars is we do some work around um, uh, around imposter syndrome and, and the importance of not knowing and being um, somewhat transparent about not not knowing. And it's easy to say it's hard it's hard to do, and it's cool that you have that kind of support at an Olin to uh, to yeah. to learn what it takes to really be a great a great uh, teacher. Actually, I'm. I, um, Mark Stevens at Penn State has coined this nice term. He calls uh, the the teacher of now the moach, a mentor coach. The mentor mm-hmm. part actually does know something, and the coach part is that pulls out and 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 is in is in questions. And I, I love that contraction comment. I love that contraction also, um, and it it has been really empowering actually being at a place where I'm allowed to say I don't know, where I'm, it's not demanded of me that I do know everything, uh, where it's encouraged that I model for my students not knowing. Um, and actually, you're talking about imposter syndrome, helping some of my students try to work through some of that um, themselves in their first semester here at Olin helped me also recognize that I do belong as a faculty member here, that um, I do have what it takes to be here, even if I don't always have the answer to a question. And I think um, we, I, I'm going to start using the word moach around Olin, and I suspect that I hope it will get picked up because that's yeah. very much the model that we take here. Um, and it, again, it's something that fits very closely into what I've always believed education should be about and never found a home for before. Yeah. Uh, and this is great. Allison, we need to take a little bit of a break. In the next segment, let's come back and talk a little bit about um, you've been doing some nice work around sustainability and, and uh, teaching environmental engineering at a school that doesn't have a environmental engineering program. Let's, uh, let's pick that up in the next segment. How about that? That sounds good. All right. Big, this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Allison Wood from Olin College. Stay with us. And we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about um, uh, Olin College's uh, take on environmental engineering. Mm-hmm. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. I'm Dave Goldberg, and this second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training coaching and change leadership consultation and, and uh, faculty development to um, help them become better moaches to help transform your organization. Uh, and you can ask our guests questions or make comments on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. And we're back with uh, Allison Wood from Olin College. And, and Allison, we were talking about um, your decision to join your, well, your decision to join Olin College and what it's been like for you a little bit. Um, let's, let's talk about some of your teaching and, 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 um, you're in a, you talked a little bit about choosing uh, the wet side of civil engineering over the uh, the structure side. I faced the same uh, decision as an undergraduate. I'm um, a hydrolician and hydrologist uh, in in my early early training, and I in some ways my motivations were similar to yours. There was the complexity and and uh, too much of structural engineering seemed like a handbook and uh, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and it just seemed like the wet the wet side had more unanswered questions and a little bit a um, little bit more ambiguity, which suited who I was. But so you're an environmental engineer teaching environmental engineering at a school that uh, doesn't have a civil engineering or an environmental engineering program. It, the, the degrees, uh, what the degrees at, at Olin are double E and M E degrees, if I'm right. Uh, what's that like? Mm-hmm. It's surprisingly great. Um, I actually worried about that coming here, um, yep. and I didn't need to. Uh, it has turned out to really be not a limitation, but um, a whole set of opportunities. Um, on one side, there is the opportunity to work outside my comfort zone, like we were talking about the modeling and simulation class, um, which is a great opportunity for me to learn. But then also opportunities to do things like create new courses and other kinds of experience for students here and to act as a resource for students here, because there are students here who are hungry for environmental learning, whether they want to major in it or not. Um, and they're excited to have more resources available to them. So that's been a lot of fun. 
Yeah, and so in one of your experiences this last year was to um, create an environmental engineering course, and um, mm-hmm. and in reading some of the things you've you've written about that, the idea of uh, doing that at a at a place that didn't already have a well established pathway was um, challenging, interesting, caused you to think differently about your discipline. How so? Um, well, I think in large part it was the wide open door that we have here at Olin um, that allows us to innovate in our classes, um, yep. along with some of the frameworks that we often use in designing courses. But then really what it came down to, I would say, is the collaboration that I had with um, my colleague, Scott Hersey, who uh, he and I co-designed and co-taught the course, and then other input and lessons learned from other colleagues. Um, because it, at Olin, we don't have quite the same focus on accumulation of content knowledge that we that most other engineering programs do, and that really freed us up. Um, so Scott and I started talking about, okay, so what do we really do as environmental engineers? And that's where we came up with this idea that we have this bigger process, so much more than what is traditionally taught as the content of an environmental engineering degree, Um, and we decided we wanted to focus on that for our students um, in this course, rather than just trying to cram them full of environmental content. Obviously, some content along the way, they have to learn some stuff, but then a lot of learning process and how to apply that stuff and how to think about that stuff. And so Scott's what Scott's background is also environmental, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so okay. So and um, um, so um, yeah. So so as you as you approach this course and worked with Scott to um, um, develop it, uh, how would you? Okay. And so it's 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 different. It's not crammed. You know. So a lot of and and I think this is true about a lot of Olin's courses. Uh, uh, the idea of covering standard material is sort of anathema to um, um, Olin's courses. That's not to say that certain things aren't covered, but um, but when you one of the nice things about covering standard material is you don't have to think real hard about what you're doing. So um, when when you're when it's a little freer form, having a framework and then or or figuring out exactly how. Um, how you're going to structure uh, to put it in a polarity context, uh, to use uh, Barry Johnson's term, the polarity, managing the polarity between structure on the one hand and freedom on the other hand. How, Mm -hmm. how did you and Scott manage um, um, without the coverage, uh, which is highly structured to, um, to to give the course some shape, but, um, and, and make it useful to, to, um, to Olin students. There were a few key elements that we nailed down very quickly, one of which was that we knew we wanted it to be project-based, and we knew we wanted there to be two main projects. Scott's specialty is in air, and mine is in water, so we knew we wanted to have an air project and a water project. Um, So that right there gave us some structure for the class. Um, Then there was a little bit of fundamental content we knew our students would need to even say they had taken an environmental class. Like, they had to have mass and energy balances and some things like this. Uh, and then beyond that, this framework that we created, thinking about the environmental engineering process, um, was another key piece that we determined early on that helped us decide which parts of an environmental engineering process we wanted our students to experience over the course of the semester. And then we sort of 
um, used that as the structure of the tree and hung the ornaments of content on it around where those branches were. So if they're doing an air quality project, they need to know certain things about um, dispersion and some things like this, uh, what criteria pollutants there are defined by the EPA and so on. Um, so there were bits of content determined by the project and by the process we wanted our students to go through. Yeah. How do you, and actually, I think you know, many of our listeners would be interested. So many of our in- listeners are coming from the kind of content uberalis perspective and understand how you do that if day after day it's okay, this week we're going to talk about. Um, we're talking about diffusion dispersion equations, and you go through the 63 flavors of those, and and you then and different solutions, and you run people. You know, it, we know how to do that. But when you're kind of pro- providing sort of a little bit of that, so that then students can grab hold of it and say a project context, uh, how do you pick? What do you pick? And and um, how how deep do you go? Because there's always the temptation to to play play the coverage game. Yeah, and uh, we did struggle a lot with the idea that we wanted to fit everything in the class and we couldn't. Um, And that's one of the things we'll be changing for the fall is a few things that we tried to cram in that we just need to let go uh, for the sake of our students not having um, an overload of work. But um, really it came down to trying to narrow down what we wanted the, the goals or the objectives of the project to be. One of the frameworks that we use here often at Olin um, is a goals, activities, assessments, um, products and assessments framework. So we yeah. start by thinking about what the goals of the semester course are, but also the goals of what each chunk, like each project are. And we decided that certain key goals were going to be our top priorities, things like critical thinking, things like in the water project, hands-on skills. We took them out in the field and we had them working in the laboratory. And so once we knew what those key goals were, those told us which um, areas to go in more depth and which areas to back off on or to leave out altogether. For example, um, we ended up doing just one day on water treatment and one day on wastewater treatment because those were not actually critical to the project that the students were doing. The students were primarily doing an analysis project, not a design project. Um, so we didn't have to teach them about how to design, you know, sedimentation basins or anything like this. Yeah. Um, so it's really that framework, I think, that that helped us. And then also um, you sent a, a document, Environmental Analysis and Engineering, a diagram uh, starting with um, define system, formulate questions, uh, what's the promise, motivation, stakeholders on the left towards um, – well, I guess I can collecting data, analyzing, uh, interpreting, communicating, choosing solutions, and evaluating impact. And you talk about this as thinking of environmental analysis in the kind of complex systems terms. Um, uh, you know, so some of these things are uh, uh, collecting data as fundamental in any engineering enterprise, analyzing. But I, I, some of these things are um, a little different. Um, have a little and a little different flavor. So, for example, um, the explicit uh, formulation of questions. Um, sometimes we're um, 
we're a little question poor and our students, uh, when they go out into the wild, don't know how to ask good questions. Um, anyways, what were, what are some of the, as you look at, at your map here, what are some of the things that sort of are departures from or, um, normal engineering method or, or how we usually teach these things? Well, it, it is the sort of the beginning and the tail end, um, the question aspect that you were just calling out, really yeah. stepping back and thinking about what is our system and what are the questions that are useful for us to ask here, which I can get into more. I have a lot I could say about questions. Um, and then in the other end of it, thinking about, okay, we've done this analysis, we've done some engineering, now what do we do with it? Um, as environmental engineers, for one thing, often our final product is a communication. And so we thought it was important for our students to think about how to communicate and how to communicate with a specific audience in a specific context. Um, but then we also wanted to close the circle and have our students think about, okay, now what impact does this have on our larger system? All environmental problems are embedded in larger systems both environmental systems and in human systems. Um, and so that's sort of what the tail end uh, of the flow yeah. is all about. Um, and my work in my dissertation really lives primarily at the beginning and the end. Those are the pieces that are the most interesting for me. And so I, it was a high priority for me to get those into the class. And luckily, yeah. Scott really cares about those also. Um, and so those are things that we, we prioritized, including them. Yeah, nice. Actually, one of the um, in your picture, you've got like a little head with a brain, and it and it says interpret, <laughs> and uh, then the caption under, uh, and I love this caption. Um, and then, what are the stories in the data? Talk to me about stories in the data. Yes, um, I I have thought a lot about how to articulate this, and I'm not sure I've quite nailed it. But here here are some ideas in that. Um, stories are sort of our way of denoting that data and information fit into the stories of this larger context and this larger system that I was just mentioning, um, that we have a specific audience anytime we're communicating, that we have some um, political, economic, social system that we're fitting into, and that um, even if we as engineers attempt to look at our data objectively, our data will always be used in other ways. Our data will always effectively tell stories to other people. Um, and so it's important for us, I think, to think about what those stories, what those narratives are, um, how does our information communicate? What do we make out of it? Where do we go with it? Um, and yeah. what does it mean to other people that we have to communicate to? Yeah, nice. No, and I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, and uh, now I, and, and in any number of ways in my own career, I've I've seen this, and I, I talked about the missing basics of engineering and talked about um, the qualitative collecting of data. And most of the data, a lot of the data we collect, yes, sometimes we collect quantitative data, but a lot of times the data we collect are stories, people telling you what's been tried in the past, how it worked or didn't work. Um, and sometimes it's an interpretation of that. It's not actually, it's all not all facts. But um, no, I think you're exactly right about about this and its importance, and um, I like to connect it to Fernando Flores's work on, um, uh, which comes out of the philosophy of language work on um, different speech acts, that is especially the distinction between uh, assertions of objective facts versus interpretations, assessments of various kind, and 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 sometimes we get those things confused, and we. 
uh, and this all this evidence based this and evidence based that that um, hides that a lot of evidence is itself an interpretation or an assessment of some sort, and and um, that what is in the data really are stories, and that the and I love the way you said it just now about that your data um, will be used by others to tell to tell stories, and so having an understanding of of those stories. Um, the ones that you intend and the ones that might be told unintentionally is really uh, super important comment. Um, yes, I will avoid uh, a long digression into the depoliticization myth in science and engineering, but um, yeah. I think you and I yeah. are in agreement that, um, that yes, there, that um, we cannot always uh, claim to be objective, that we often most often cannot claim to truly be objective in the work that we do. Um, and that thinking about and acknowledging the fact that we are interpreting what we find, uh, particularly in this day and age, so much of science and engineering is full of uncertainty and we're getting better at acknowledging that uncertainty. Um, so I think that that's part of it is um, being realistic about what it is we're really finding. Maybe we are working with qualitative data. Maybe we have numbers, but the numbers could be very variable based on conditions or the numbers are very uncertain based on the inputs that we were able to work with. Um, And I think teaching students to be upfront about that in communication is important. Well, you don't have to go all the way to Foucault or Derrida to um, <laughs> uh, uh, to to recognize that you know. So there are okay, fine. We can go out and measure temperatures and concentrations of um, of, of this, that, or the other uh, chemical in some flow stream, and and we're pretty sure done well that that's those things are factual and and subject to correction and and error, of course. But uh, but then. Um, then whether or not those are good, bad, or indifferent things are are value judgments of diff- of different sorts, and we need to to the extent that we don't recognize that and pretend that say some sort of hidden value judgment that's hidden in hidden in the language of a particular discipline isn't a ju- isn't a value judgment is is just a mistake. I mean, it's I mean it doesn't mean that it, it means that we need to have that fuller discussion about those values at some point. Agreed. Yeah. Nice. So um, let's. We've got. You know, um, I'm just having too much fun here today. But um, <laughs> so um, I'm gonna, we're gonna. We need to go to the go to another break. But uh, and we're gonna kind of talk. Come back to kind of reflecting on your year at Olin. But before we do that. Um, what else would you like to say about your? You know, you've you've started a research program, and we don't need to um, to to get it all just right now. But um, what else would you like to say about um, your teaching and 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 research and environmental engineering that you haven't had a chance to say? Oh wow! Mostly that uh, being here has really opened things up for me. That the opportunities are limitless, and so this summer has really, really been a process of reflection on this year. And now that I have so much freedom to choose what I want to do, what are the things that are most important yeah. to me to do? Um, and it's it's a real gift to be able to to make those choices. Um, and I can see why. In a lot of other places, people stick to certain constraints because, in some ways, it's a lot easier. But I think this is a lot more exciting. Dan, let's let's take a break and come back and and, and talk about some of those reflections that you've been sitting in this summer. Great. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest Allison Wood from Olin. Uh, we're going to come back and um, 
uh, see what she's been thinking about her first year at Olin and what she might be thinking about doing next. Stay with us. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, a whole new engineer, the coming revolution in engineering education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're back with Allison Wood from Olin College, and and um, we were talking a little bit about her teaching in environmental engineering uh, this past um, past year. And um, this last segment, I want to kind of follow up where we started in the first segment. Allison, your first degree was a liberal arts degree in dramatic literature from Harvard. You, um, you, went, on, you went on to get a uh, bachelor's and graduate degrees at uh, pretty big state schools, Rutgers in Texas. Um, how, how would you, and now, now you're working at, at little old Olin, um, mm-hmm. how, would you, how would you characterize the culture at Olin relative to that of the other schools, Harvard, Rutgers, and Texas? It's pretty good, uh, it's not statistically valid sample, but it's an interesting sample. It is an interesting sample, um, uh, a wide variety, I would say. And in some ways, I find um, the culture at Olin more like the culture when I was studying at Harvard um, mm. than when I was studying engineers at the, uh, engineering at the other schools, um, in the sense of there's more shared identity here, um, and I think um, more individual inner driving force here than I saw certainly at Rutgers. Um, at Rutgers, it was there was a much more of a mix of students um, from people who were there because they really cared about engineering to people who were there because engineering is a good degree to get. Um, and the school does not really promote, um, uh, I would say, any kind of coherent culture among the student body as far as I could tell. 
And this may in part be because I was uh, a little bit older when I went back to school at Rutgers. Um, but uh, in some ways, I would also say that the culture here at Olin is similar to the small graduate program that I was in within UT, um, yeah. University of Texas, that I don't think undergrad here is like undergrad at UT, um, but the Environmental and Water Resources Program, uh, there were only about 100 students, um, and, and the culture here reminds me more of that graduate experience, of the kinds of, partly it's the autonomy, partly it's that sense of community, um, yeah. and again, that, that driving force to learn about certain kinds of things. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that. And one of the things, you know, of course, at, a, at a, an R1, when you're, you're looking at teaching hundreds of people in a freshman class, it's hard to get to, to know people and it's hard to know the, the ways in which you're affecting or not affecting them. It's pretty easy, though, in your own research lab to mm-hmm. have that kind of intimacy and contact and to, um, and to create a, uh, an empowering culture. I always tried to do that as a graduate student, I appreciated that as a graduate student when I was trusted and unleashed. Um, but of course, there are counter, there are examples of graduate cultures where it, it's still obedience-driven as, as the undergraduate model is in large schools. Comment? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and that is one of the reasons, actually, that I... Um, that I have such strong opinions about how we run higher education in this country is that I believe very firmly in the idea of the student as autonomous. Students are people. <laughs> and um, when I often said in graduate school to friends, like, it was amazing that my advisors treated me like a person um, as opposed to a face out in the crowd or, you know, a set of papers that they had created or something like that. And, of course, different professors handle this differently, and it is much more difficult the bigger the school is and the bigger the classes are. Um, But I think that it is better for the education of the student and better for the institution when it's possible for everyone involved to be treated like people, um, to be given at least some degree of autonomy and to be treated with respect. Yeah, and of course, this is, you know, Carl Rogers was talking about this back in the 50s. And uh, so it's interesting it's taken us this long to um, to to take it seriously, although I think it was taken seriously in the 50s. It just sort of came and came and went, uh, or it came in certain circles and, and went just as quickly. It seems like there's a bigger movement towards that. And I think there are things about, things about our culture technologically with the web and and otherwise that make it more of an imperative now but you know of course carl rogers was was a crazy man and considered you know you know he was you know he he insisted on thinking of uh, uh psychological and psychiatric patients as individuals and which was you know no these are pay, these are sick people no they're they're human beings and 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 he applied the same ideas to his uh to his students i I guess it's when you say it like that. It's like it's like why is it? Yeah, maybe I should just add, why is it so hard for us to get to that point? What is it? What is it that keeps the old, the old, old obedience-driven? No, you need do as I say, learn learn what I say, model in place. Um, honestly, I have a few opinions about that. One is. Um, that faculty have too much to do. Faculty have too many demands on their time and mm. it's not possible for them to treat all the students like people because they're too busy 
yep. frantically scrambling for grant dollars that are getting rarer and rarer and more difficult to get, um, and frantically scrambling to publish more and more papers. And because of the way tenure works and because of the way funding works in this country at this time, we're making yeah. it harder and harder for, for them to do all the parts of their job well. Um, I also think the corporatization of higher education is a problem as we're driving more and more towards um, efficiency and things like this rather than focusing primarily on the quality of the education. Um, but then there's also something that I've always struggled with in certain cultures in academia of um, it was hard for me and therefore it should be hard for you, yeah. which is something that... Um, is really the opposite of the perspective I've always taken, which is this is hard for me, and so I want to make it easier for you if I can. Um, and that is something that I struggle with in really sort of in American culture in general is um, the why is it that some people are oriented one way and some people are oriented another, and what does that mean for things about how we run our country and some things like that. And again, I'll try not to, <laughs> to get into a long No, no, but, and, and, but yeah, no, I think you're making some, some good points, and I, I think in, in almost all of them can be set up in polarity form. So you can have the... Um, I think William James, uh, and I don't remember his exact distinction, but it was sort of um, not hard-hearted, but you know, soft-hearted, and and uh, and um, kind of more uh, sink or swim. Actually, both sides of that polarity are okay, but it depends mm-hmm. on the individual and and requires sensitivity to the individual and and care for the individual. So, so like uh, the unleashing response of trusting someone. Um, is to not do for them uh, and not disempower them. And then we can we can kind of, if we break things down and make things too easy and too simple, we can de- de- demotivate. There's a... Um, there's a there's there's a complexity. I think part you know maybe some of this is the the complexity of what learning and education really are are about. Is you know, we think of it in overly simple terms, but it's it's not something simple. Agreed. Um, I if only you could see me nodding over the phone. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> I um, yes, I think it's very it's very personal and it's very complicated. Uh, it makes me think of the, the sort of the high school sports coach who pushes and pushes and pushes the athletes, and some people really thrive in yeah. that situation. Um, and I am not one of those people. So uh, that informs a lot of how I approach educating my own students. I don't want to replicate that model because it didn't work for me. Um, and, but I'm sure there are students who wish that I would be more like that. Um, I'm not sure how many students of that ilk end up at Olin, per se. Um, But yeah, and as more students are going to college and classes are bigger and faculty have more to do, it becomes more and more difficult to attend to the individual needs of different students. Um, So I I have been thinking a lot this summer about some sort of radical ways that we might change our educational system, none of which might be particularly practical in my lifetime, certainly not in the near future. But um, I think to really address the um, who is going to college now, how many people are going to college now, what education they need for the 21st century, um, I suspect we're going to need to see some really dramatic changes in how we approach education. Yeah, and I actually, that's, 
um, I was headed and I was going to, I was going to play smaller ball with you, but that's pretty big ball. And maybe that's where we, and we've just got a couple of minutes left. So, um, if, so I'll give you a choice. I was going to ask you, uh, to share takeaways from your, your year at Olin, but if you've been reflecting on, on that kind of big stuff, I'd, I think the audience would be happy to hear some of the, some of those reflections and you've, you've got about a minute to do whatever you want with it. Okay, in many ways, I would say they're the same reflections, that being at Olin has been forced for me that we can educate people differently, um, that it is resource-intensive to do a, lo- a lot of these important things in education, um, but that it's not impossible to make change and to make pretty drastic changes, um, that we here at Olin are actually putting these things into practice and seeing success and other people in other places are excited about what we're doing, which makes me hopeful for some larger change, but um, it's going to take a lot more than our little school of 350 students to get us where I think we need to go. Great. And so if people, um, if uh, listeners want to find out more about your work or your classes or get in touch with you, um, what websites or email addresses should they contact? Probably the easiest thing to do is look me up on the Olin website um, and email me. It's allison.wood at olin.edu. The trick is you have to spell Allison right, A-L-I-S-O-N. And then I'm also on Twitter, allisonwood140, um, and will be hopefully updating my personal website in the coming weeks, allisonwood.com, but it's a little, it's very out of date at the moment. Um, So contacting me is the easiest way to find everything. Um, I can direct you to papers or anything else that people might be interested. Allison, it's been a delight to uh, meet you and, and speak with you and wish you all the best as you continue your career at Olin. Thank you so much, Dave. This has been a great pleasure. Been listening to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Special thanks to our guest, Allison Wood and Olin College, help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.